It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Kennedy. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Sandra Smith, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, August 30th, 2023. I'm Chris Foster. The two-year anniversary of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. But President Biden took the decision. It will be one of the most consequential decisions of his presidency, and it set in motion many other events. The history hasn't been written yet. I'm Jared Halpern. President Biden claims victory against major drug makers. The administration lists prescriptions seniors will soon pay less for. When Americans pay two to three times more than other countries for the exact same drug, when the Department of Veterans Affairs achieves prices that are about 50% lower than Medicare by negotiating, those are, are all signs that it's completely appropriate for Medicare to come to the table and get a better deal. And I'm Dr. Nicole Sapphire. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Less than a month after the attacks on America, September 11, 2001, President George W. Bush announced military strikes. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. And just short of 20 years later, after the death of more than 2,400 American troops, more American contractors than that, and more than 100,000 Afghan fighters, soldiers, police officers, and civilians, American troops were leaving. 13 of them, not soon enough, killed in the suicide bombing at the Kabul airport along with 170 Afghan civilians. They're part of a great and noble company of American heroes. President Biden and his administration still face unanswered questions about that attack in the minds of many. It happened during a chaotic evacuation, ending two years ago tonight, August 30th, 2021. It's back in February 2020 that an agreement was signed with the Taliban for American troops to leave if conditions were met. President Trump, even as late as December, was telling the military here in the Pentagon to get out of Afghanistan in the next few weeks. It was not even, you know, there was a deadline given. Fox News Chief National Security Correspondent Jennifer Griffin. The military obviously could not do that. The decision was then handed over to Biden. He did a review, but it was very clear after he listened to his top military advisors and national security advisors who all told him that they did not agree with going to zero um, and pulling out of Afghanistan. But President Biden took the decision. It will be one of the most consequential decisions of his presidency, and it set in motion many other events. The history hasn't been written yet in terms of uh, President Biden still defends the decision. He believes that it was a war that could not be won and that he was not going to send any more 18-year-olds to serve in Afghanistan uh, 20 years after 9-11. And so he stands by the decision. Obviously, nobody likes the fact that uh, American service members died in the final days. The 13 at Abbey Gate will always be remembered with, you know, great, great pain and, and uh, among all of the senior leadership, but they also are remembering the more than 2,000 who were killed there and every family that was affected over 20 years. So President Biden doesn't understand why more people didn't understand why he was doing what he was doing. Uh, there is a sense, I think, among uh, the president uh, that some degree of chaos was inevitable and it became more inevitable when President Ghani and his national security team fled the country overnight. So if you talk to the military, I think there are a lot of feelings of 
regret of that it didn't have to end quite this way. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken to Afghan vets, and I'm sure you've spoken to many, many, many more than I have, who, people who say, look, why was I there? Why did my friends die for this? So uh, what was the mission to begin with, and was it achieved? And then we, did we just stay too long? Well, I think that if you talk to the military leadership, and again, many of them who are senior generals now, four-star generals now, were not always four-star generals. They started and they cut their teeth in Afghanistan. Some of them started as colonels. And if you talk to them now, there's a resentment that now suddenly everyone's saying, was it ever worth it? And was the sacrifice worth it? I mean, remember, there has not been a major terror attack on U.S. soil since 9-11. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that U.S. troops were fighting al-Qaeda, going after um, fighting ISIS in Syria, Iraq, um, Afghanistan. It was all part of, unfortunately, after that terrible tragedy of 9-11, it set in motion a war on terror, unfortunately, that most uh, military leaders, while you may question some of the tactics and why certain, um, I mean, one of the criticisms of Afghanistan and the way it was fought is it was 21-year wars as opposed to a 20-year war that the battle plan kept getting. Every time a new general came in, you would have a, a new strategy. And so the strategy was not set and adhered to from the beginning. And remember, the rug was pulled out of from under the military when President Bush and Donald Rumsfeld decided to shift gears and, and turn their attention to Iraq. Uh, there was a lot being done in, in Afghanistan. Afghanistan that could have ended differently. When President Biden was vice president, he wanted to go down to a a small CT mission in Afghanistan uh, when he was vice president. So this is something he had wanted to do. And when he became president, he followed through on things that were set in motion that President Trump and his team had done. And basically, the mood was to pull out. Now, again, the loss of any sort of bases and intelligence is really sitting very um, hard with military veterans and the really the rise in suicides have to be dealt with and the messaging and understanding of what was achieved in the 20-year fight against terrorists uh, overseas probably needs to be explained a little better. If the argument was, look, we can't stay here forever, why not? We have troops in countries all over the world. Uh, At some point, was this going to turn into heavy fighting again and more guerrilla attacks if we had stayed? Certainly, that's the argument that President Biden made. He said, anyone who tells you that you could keep 5,000 troops there and not have to build up to a greater number of troops once the fighting season began again, uh, he would say that that probably wouldn't be the case. And whereas some military and intelligence people that I speak to who are in the decision-making chain at that time uh, felt that they could have kept, um, of, you know, you probably couldn't have gone much below about 5,000 troops. But yes, you're right. Um, around the world, there are, I think there are U.S. troops in about 180 countries. So there are still troops in the Sinai Desert from, you know, the 70s. Uh, th- this is, uh, unfortunately, the way the world is and because the U.S. has been the world's policeman for so many years and keeping stability in places where there's been conflict. Um, So to go to zero in Afghanistan, I think the thing that is hardest for most Americans, whether you served in the military or didn't, is looking at 
how the promises that were made to the Afghan women, the education, the investment in trying in and the promises to those young girls and women who have gone back basically to the Stone Ages with the Taliban in charge. There's no girls' education anymore. Uh, there are no female uh, doctors allowed to work. Uh, the education of women and to see all that disappear after you've raised expectations, that is a moral wound that I think uh, few in this country have easily recovered from. Yeah, I mean, that to me, that's one of the most, if not the most heartbreaking aspects of this, that especially these younger women and, and girls who grew up with nothing but memories of relative freedom now were thrown back into what it was pre-U.S. involvement. And it's not clear, though, that if the, I mean, the, the problem was there was never good governance in Afghanistan. And so the government itself was wobbly and billions of dollars had been spent on the Afghan military. The fact that it fell apart so quickly, it really shows that even if the U.S. had stayed with uh, and kept intelligence bases, if the Taliban had taken back over, which it seemed likely to do, uh, then the U.S. would have been in a very awkward position of having to negotiate with the Taliban. So I think the history really is not written. 20 years from now, will people saying uh, the U.S. should still be in Afghanistan? From President Biden's perspective, he thinks that history will prove him right, that it was the right decision. What's the state of U.S.-Taliban relations now? Is it a hold your enemies close kind of thing, or is it something different, or is it just fair to say it's just complicated? Well, I would say that it's being, uh, if there's any contact, it's through the State Department and through the humanitarian aid groups and USAID. There's no real contact, uh, as far as I know, and I'm pretty sure I would know if there were contact on a military level or intelligence level, sharing level. So I think that the State Department, um, and I think it's important to mention this at this point, there is a degree of frustration at the senior levels of the military and Pentagon, that the State Department had been warned early in the spring before the withdrawal, uh, before they were told to go to zero by the president and, and get all the troops out. And remember, all the U.S. troops were out uh, by July 4th. So they got out early because they didn't want to be sitting ducks. Uh, and so, you know, there was some controversy about leaving Bagram Air Base, and it was a bit surprising to people. But from a military perspective, they got their people out. Nobody was killed. It was when they had to go back in and conduct a NEO, uh, an evacuation, uh, that they felt very frustrated that the State Department had not moved faster in the spring to give SIV visas, to get people on planes, to evacuate the translators and the allies who had worked closely. The State Department's point of view is if we had started doing that, evacuating, the government would have fallen even faster. And their hope, and it was a hope and a prayer, was that uh, they could somehow keep an embassy open, somehow stay engaged, and somehow the Afghan government would survive. That didn't happen. And that's when the chaos began when the U.S. military had to go back in and basically evacuate not only the embassy and the Americans there, but also the 70 to 100,000 allies who um, who had worked, many of whom had worked or and their families had worked for the U.S. government. That's where it became a lot more tricky. If you talk to members of the 82nd Airborne and the Marines uh, who were not at Abbey Gate, but who were elsewhere 
positioned um, and getting people, the Afghans on planes out of the out of Afghanistan, they're very proud of what they did. And you talk to the airmen who were landing planes. Uh, the evacuation that took place, the largest in U.S. history, uh, 70 to 120,000 uh, Afghans who were saved, if you will, by being put on those flights. What those soldiers and Marines and airmen pulled off in those final days of the withdrawal is nothing short of a miracle. They lost 11 Marines, a, a soldier and a, a Navy corpsman at Abbey Gate in, because of that terrible suicide bombing. But it, what they accomplished in terms of an evacuation, uh, I still hear incredible stories of heroism um, from the 82nd Airborne, the Marines and others. I mean, it really, it's hard to imagine how they brought that chaos under control and managed to still get as many people out as they did. And the last of those evacuation flights left two years ago tonight, August 30th, 2021. Jennifer Griffin is Fox News Chief National Security Correspondent. Jennifer, good to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you. News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. This is Dr. Nicole Sapphire with your Fox News commentary coming up. We beat Big Pharma. That was the refrain here at the White House from President Biden hours after the administration listed the first 10 drugs selected for a Medicare price negotiation authorized as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. Big Pharma. Big Pharma charges Americans more than three times what they charge other countries simply because they could. And I think it's outrageous. That's why these negotiations matter. Reducing the cost of these 10 additional drugs alone will help more than 9 million Americans. The 10 drugs selected for negotiations cover treatments for heart failure, diabetes, arthritis, and blood clots, and include popular prescriptions like Eliquis, Inbril, and Stellara. Medicare spends $50 billion a year on these 10 drugs. And American seniors are spending $3.4 billion on out-of-pocket costs. Still, the Medicare provision passed in sweeping legislation that won no support from Republicans is not entirely settled yet. Republican lawmakers warn the program is tantamount to price controls. A flip of congressional control could undo the provision. And several drug makers like AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, and Bristol-Myers Squibb are suing, arguing the new Medicare requirement violates the Fifth Amendment's protection against the government taking property without compensation. Back in 2019, several pharmaceutical executives testified in the Senate about high prices that cost billions for Medicare plans. Then Merck CEO Kenneth Frazier warned about damage to the biomedical ecosystem that thrives on research and development investments. The single most important thing we do at Merck is to persist in making large and risky investments in R&D that allow our thousands of researchers to sit at their lab benches to try to create something transformative, despite the overwhelming odds that their efforts will not succeed 
since more than nine out of 10 compounds fail. For seniors enrolled in Medicare Part D and Part B, savings under this new program are still three years away. And for the next four years, the administration says Medicare will negotiate prices for up to 60 drugs and then as many as 20 additional drugs every year after that. But the first step, negotiations on lower prices on this first batch of 10 medications. Look, Americans pay more for prescription drugs than any other country on earth. It's completely outrageous, and that's why we are so committed to implementing the Inflation Reduction Act and delivering these benefits to people. Kristen Link Young is the White House Deputy Director of the Domestic Policy Council for Health and Veterans. So the first step in the process was the Medicare program announced today 10 drugs that have been selected for negotiation. And these 10 drugs are the highest spending drugs in the Medicare program that meet all of the statutory criteria. So altogether, last year, Medicare spent $50 billion just on these 10 drugs. That represents about 20% of the spending in Medicare Part D. Um, and, and we are moving forward to negotiate prices and achieve a better deal for American seniors. The next step in the process is a, a series of negotiations between Medicare and the pharmaceutical companies. The prices will be announced in about a year at the beginning of September 2024. And then those, those prices will be incorporated into the Part D plans for seniors in 2026. Why, I guess, does that process just take that long? I mean, as you kind of run through all the traps that you have to do through, through the bureaucracy and all of that. That's exactly right. This is the first time we're going through this process. And so Medicare is taking a full year to make sure we get it right. We run a, a fair negotiation process and, and establish prices that, that benefit American consumers. And then after Medicare determines the negotiated prices, the insurance companies that run the Medicare Part D program need to incorporate those those prices into their bids for the next year. What happens when these drug makers that make these 10 drugs say we're not going to sell them at this price? You know, look, the, the pharmaceutical industry spent more than $400 million last year trying to block the negotiation program from going into effect. Um, and now they're they're running to courts to try to accomplish what they, they couldn't get done in Congress. They've sued us eight times already to try to block negotiation from going into effect. We're confident that we will prevail in these lawsuits and that the, the negotiation program will continue to move forward. Drug companies ultimately have a choice. They can sign an agreement and come to the negotiating table and agree to negotiated prices with Medicare. They can choose to withdraw from the Medicare program. It's a voluntary program. Drug companies are, are free to withdraw. Um, or they can remain in the program and, and pay an excise tax under the statute. So there are a lot of options available for folks, but we uh, look forward to working with the companies to get the best deal for folks. So that's the stick. The stick is the excise tax. That's exactly right. The, the statute is clear that drug companies you know, have a choice here, but that the Medicare program um, has options and, and doesn't need to continue to have its hands tied behind its back. It has the, the option to negotiate lower prices. What is the percentage that is expected to be right so you go to the table you negotiate they say here's what we're we're selling it at now here's what medicare's buying it for now what's the percentage that that the program's now trying to, to get back from from the pharmaceuticals medicare released guidance this summer explaining how they were going to create their opening offers in the negotiating process and what they were going to be looking at um, and their starting point is really going to be the price of therapeutic alternatives um, and so they're going to look at therapeutic alternatives for the drugs that have been selected and then uh, and the price for those drugs and then adjust pricing based on how a selected drug compares to those alternatives so if it 
is more effective or it has a better side effect profile that might justify paying more um, and other factors might might go the other direction. So that's how CMS is going to set their initial offer. The statute specifies that Medicare um, can't agree to prices that exceed a, a certain ceiling price, which is at least a 25% discount off of the, the list prices for those drugs today. And so Medicare will also be factoring that, that ceiling into their, their process of making offers. One of the things that, that we've certainly heard from the, the big pharma and pharmaceutical companies is it is really expensive to develop drugs, right? I guess we look at sort of the price on how much it costs to make it and, and how much, uh, you know, upsell there is to that. But the actual production of the drug, the research and development and the testing, getting all of the FDA approvals cost a lot of money. Is there anything that should be done to drive down that cost? Yeah, so, so let me say a couple of things there. Uh, you know, first of all, one recent investigation found that in, in a six-year period, the big pharmaceutical companies spent more on stock buybacks and dividends than they did on research and development. These, uh, these, this is a highly profitable industry that is making a lot of money. It's investing in research and development, but it is also uh, padding its profits with outrageous, padding its pockets with, with outrageous profits. Um, and that's, um, you know, where, where we think the American people and, and seniors in Medicare should stop being taken advantage of. Uh, the, the president has said many times when talking about this program that, that he's a capitalist. He believes everybody should have the opportunity to, to make a profit. And we are not trying to keep drug companies from making a profit in this, this program. But when Americans pay two to three times more than other countries for the exact same drug, when the Department of Veterans Affairs achieves prices that are about 50% lower than Medicare by negotiating, those are, are all signs that it's completely appropriate for Medicare to come to the table and get a better deal. Are there provisions or there safeguards that these medications have to be manufactured in the United States? There's nothing in the Inflation Reduction Act that's particularly focused on where drugs are manufactured, but of course, as you know, the president is deeply committed to reinvigorating American manufacturing and has a long record of success I mean, there. The, the reason I ask that question is if this becomes an issue where, you know, the pharmaceutical companies say, listen, we're going to enter into this program and we're going to sell the drug to, to the federal government for less, but because of that, we can't make them here. We have to ship these jobs and the, these plants and the research and development overseas to to help make up that 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 loss. That's not an argument that we've heard from pharmaceutical companies. I will also say I have a, I have a hard time believing that pharmaceutical companies are, are selecting their manufacturing sites out of the, the goodness of their hearts. Um, and I don't think the, the negotiating process will play much of a role in that. Let's talk about, okay, let's talk about some of the uh, lawsuits. I guess the, the question I would have is what if they are successful? We've promised something now to seniors that could go away. Look, Medicare tries to get the, the best deal for American seniors all across the program. People negotiate for prices all across the economy. The Department of Veterans Affairs negotiates for prescription drug prices. There is nothing in the Constitution that prevents America from negotiating lower drug prices in the Medicare program, and we are competent. We are, we are going to succeed here. The, the president is, uh, is clear that he is not backing down. We are going to keep fighting to bring these benefits to the American people and, and lower costs for prescription drugs. Kristen Link-Young with the Domestic Policy Council. Thank you for the time.
I'm Dana Perino. Join me for my brand new podcast, Perino on Politics. As we analyze the 2024 election cycle, make sure you subscribe to this series on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts and leave me a rating and review. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Dr. Nicole Sapphire. What's on your mind? As the summer days slowly come to an end, the excitement of a new school year approaches. However, for many students, parents too, this anticipation can be marred by the looming worry of back-to-school stress. The pressures of academic performance, social interactions, and the uncertainties of the future can lead to overwhelming feelings of anxiety and apprehension for many. Back-to-school stress is not a mere fleeting sentiment. It is a legitimate concern that can have consequences on a child's well-being. From elementary to university, children are behind in their academic and social skills because of the COVID pandemic. Students lost out on about 35% of a normal school year's worth of learning when in-person learning stopped, according to research published in Nature Human Behavior. Now, children are tasked with recouping that learning loss, but they are also lacking in the skills to cope with this challenge. Add this to the complex web of social interactions, and it becomes evident why so many young minds are feeling the weight of stress on their shoulders. International studies looking at children of all ages, ranging from preschool to college age, found that COVID policies greatly affected mental health and behavioral issues, exacerbating problems from hyperactivity to depression. Recognizing the severity of these issues is the first step to helping kids get back on track and beat the school-time blues. It took a few years, but federal agencies are finally sounding the alarm on the devastation the pandemic had on our kids. Addressing the learning loss requires a comprehensive and holistic approach that involves parents, teachers, schools, and communities working together. The biggest thing we can do as parents is to get more involved with our children's learning and daily lives. Whether it is sitting and doing homework together or choosing a school that is right for your child. As parents, it is our job to check in with our children and ensure they are getting the support they need. When parents can choose a school for their child, they become more invested in their child's education. This engagement can lead to improved student outcomes and a more supportive learning environment. While school choice is not an option for everyone, educators everywhere should consider extending school days and offer weekend classes or summer programs to make up for lost instructional time. If they don't, Parents should seek out those resources for their kids. It's also crucial to ensure our kids' physical well-being by encouraging healthy eating habits, physical activity, limited time on electronics, and getting quality sleep, as these factors can impact learning. Remember that addressing learning loss will be an ongoing effort that requires patience, flexibility, and a willingness to adapt to changing circumstances. It's essential to create an environment where kids feel supported, motivated, and empowered to learn. Parents have a crucial role in alleviating back-to-school stress. While it is natural to want the best for our kids, parents should temper expectations and focus on fostering a sense of intrinsic motivation that will provide lasting effects beyond a single semester. The answer is not to lower our expectations of kids, but students need to know that their worth is not solely determined by their academic performance. Back-to-school stress is a significant challenge that demands our attention and compassion. By fostering a supportive and understanding environment at home and in school, we can help kids cope with academic pressures and social anxieties effectively.
Together, we can ensure that the new academic year becomes a time of growth, resilience, and self-discovery for our children, paving the way for a brighter and healthier future. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, Fox News. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.